You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 44, Lord Dunmore's War. The last few weeks have all been about Boston and New England, and so will the next few weeks as well. Today, though, I want to step away from Boston and spend some time on another incident further south that flared up around the same time. While agents, mostly from Pennsylvania, were trying to set up the colony of Vandalia that I discussed back in episode 37, Virginians hoped to make their own advances into the same region. These attempts led to what became known as Lord Dunmore's War in 1774. I mentioned Lord Dunmore back in episode 38 when he served briefly as governor of New York and tried to get rich selling land already owned by New Hampshire farmers who became the Green Mountain Boys. I promised then that I'd give a little more background on Lord Dunmore at some point, and today that point has arrived. John Murray, the fourth Earl of Dunmore, came from a prominent Scottish family. His father made the mistake of supporting the Jacobite uprising of 1745-46. You may recall that the Duke of Cumberland, the uncle of the future King George III, had built his military reputation by crushing these rebels at the Battle of Culloden in 1746. John's father survived that battle, only to be thrown into the Tower of London. John's uncle, the second Earl of Dunmore, did some heavy lobbying to keep his brother alive and to protect the family title. As part of that effort, John joined the British Regular Army in 1750 at age 19. That same year, the king pardoned his father and allowed him to return home. A few years later, the uncle died childless, and John's father became the third Earl of Dunmore. When his father died in 1756, John became the fourth Earl of Dunmore and soon took a seat in the House of Lords. Now, for Scottish aristocracy, a seat in the House of Lords was not automatic. Only 16 out of around 90 Scottish lords got to sit in Parliament. All the other Scottish lords voted on who would get to go. But even that vote was a technicality. The king issued a list of recommended members and the lords almost always rubber-stamped that list. The king recommended Dunmore, and Dunmore went to London. Although Lord Dunmore had a title, the lands that went with that title brought in almost no income. So Dunmore needed to find a way to support himself. His lifestyle was putting him deeper in debt with no serious income. Fortunately, his wife's family had connections in the Privy Council. Dunmore used those connections to finagle an appointment as the new governor of New York in 1770. Unlike members of Parliament, a royal governor got a substantial annual salary, in this case, 2,000 pounds sterling. 
A governor could also earn extra money from fees for issuing land patents and other official actions. Dunmore traveled to New York, where he immediately got into that fight with Lieutenant Governor Colden about dividing up fees on land patents New York was selling in what would later become Vermont. Dunmore wanted to go halvesies on all the fees Colden collected since Dunmore had received his appointment, but before he arrived in the colony to begin work. We are talking about a fair amount of money. Dunmore got his appointment in December 1769, but did not arrive in New York until October 1770. During that time, Colden had been distributing land grants as fast as he could. Dunmore had the law on his side for claiming half. However, Colden told him, that's not how we do things in New York. When the issue came up once before, a governor had tried to collect half the fees from the lieutenant governor and had not gotten it despite the law. Neither side wanted to compromise, and both sides sent letters to London demanding their position prevail. In the end, the dispute lasted for years. Colden never turned over a penny before he died a few years later. That Dunmore immediately picked a fight with the lieutenant governor as soon as he arrived and would not back down shows just how concerned he was with getting money. Going forward, Dunmore would get all the fees for new land patents. Despite the ongoing dispute with colonists with the New Hampshire grants, Governor Dunmore almost immediately started granting land and collecting fees. In February 1771, only four months after he had arrived, Dunmore received word from London that Lord Bautetort, the forgettable governor of Virginia, had died suddenly. Officials in London decided to promote Dunmore to governor of Virginia. Although Virginia was a promotion and paid more, Dunmore did not want to leave. He mostly argued that he did not like the Virginia climate. His real reason, though, was that he was in the middle of an illicit land deal that would give him over 50,000 acres of land in what would later become Vermont. Dunmore sent word back to London that, thanks but no thanks, I'd like to stay in New York, but his protests fell on deaf ears. Lord Dartmouth told him his replacement, Lord Tryon from North Carolina, would be coming up to become the new governor of New York. Tryon arrived in July 1771, but Dunmore refused to leave. He eventually allowed the new governor to be sworn in, but Dunmore stayed in New York, hoping that word would arrive from London that his request to stay governor of New York had been approved. When that did not happen, Dunmore finally packed his bags and headed for Virginia. When he arrived, the House of Burgesses only seemed to want to pass resolutions complaining about how Parliament was infringing on their rights and trying to coordinate with New England radicals. Like most colonies, Virginia had an appointed council and an elected assembly, called the House of Burgesses. Now, in case you're wondering, the term Burgess comes from Scotland and originally referred to a free citizen living in a burg or borough, a walled city from medieval times. Eventually, the term evolved to mean city leaders, and later it referred to members of parliament who represented boroughs. Virginians adopted this term when they set up their first elected legislature in 1619. Dunmore occasionally convened the Burgesses to get them to appropriate funds to run the colony and attend to matters, but he usually had to dissolve the sessions within days 
because the Burgesses insisted on using the session to complain about London. As a result, little got done in his first few years. Governor Dunmore and the leading colonists simply had different views on how to run the colony and neither seemed ready to compromise. One area, though, where the governor and legislature did agree was on western expansion. As he did in New York, Dunmore pursued land speculation, this time in western Virginia. Again, he would hope to make a fortune from changes in land ownership rules that he would have a hand in creating. The conflict of interest rules that we have today were just not a thing during this era. There was, however, a big problem with this plan. While Dunmore and the Virginians were eager to push westward, King George's Royal Proclamation of 1763 still made it illegal to settle west of the Allegheny Mountains. A decade after that proclamation, everyone seemed to be jockeying for position for when that ban finally fell. Other land speculators knew that if the governor had some skin in the game, he would be much more helpful in getting those lands open for settlement. And as I said, Dunmore had no problems receiving a personal interest in several land speculation companies. Dunmore began granting land patents west of the Alleghenies to veterans of the French and Indian War. He also renewed claims for Pittsburgh to be part of Virginia. These moves were popular in Virginia and one area where he could work well with the colonists. The legislature even named a county after him in the Shenandoah Valley, though the county would be renamed a few years later after Dunmore became a hated figure during the Revolution. In the early 1770s, though, Dunmore seemed helpful in assisting with Virginia's claims to more western lands. As I mentioned back in episode 37, Despite the proclamation of 1763, the Iroquois had sold out the Indians living in what is today West Virginia at the Treaty of Fort Stanwix in 1768. The local Shawnee, Delaware, and Mingo, who actually lived on this land, did not accept that treaty and were prepared to fight over it. In the fall of 1773, a hunter named Daniel Boone led a group of about 50 colonists to settle in some of these disputed lands. A local tribe captured several of them, including Boone's son. The Indians proceeded to torture and kill them in order to send a message. Message received, Boone and his party abandoned their expedition and pulled out of the region. Over the next few months, Indians and settlers attacked and killed each other. Virginians were trying to occupy western territories while the local tribes were making every effort to stop them. In April 1774, a group of Virginia frontiersmen responding to a Cherokee raid that stole several horses and killed two men moved in on what was by all accounts a small peaceful Mingo settlement on Yellow Creek in what is today West Virginia. As with many of these frontier accounts, there are many different stories depending on who is writing them. Some shade the facts clearly in favor of the colonists, others in favor of the Indians. I'd urge you to check out the variety of accounts available if you really want to get a better idea. What follows is simply my best interpretation of events based on those variety of sources. The Virginians settled into camp on one side of the creek where a tavern and trading post run by a man named Joshua Baker lived. 
According to settler accounts, the group of 21 Virginians, led by a man named Daniel Greathouse, came to Baker's rescue after he had received a report that the Indians were planning to kill him and destroy his tavern. At least that was their claim later. The group of Indians that came to the tavern did not seem particularly threatening. A group of Mingo, five men, one or two women, and a baby, crossed the creek to visit the tavern. Three of the Indians began drinking with the white men, and everyone seemed to be getting along. The men then set up targets for a shooting contest. The Indians shot first, and as soon as they had emptied their guns by firing at the targets, the Virginians opened fire on the Indians. Those not killed instantly were finished off with tomahawks or knives. They killed the unarmed women too. The only survivor was the baby, who the Virginians believed had a white father living in Pennsylvania. Next, the Virginians crossed the creek, where there were still a few other Mingo men, women, and children. The Indians fled for their lives downriver, seeking places to hide. The Virginians hunted them down, killing anyone they found. In total, they killed about 15 people, mostly women and children. The next day, the same men also attack a party of Shawnee, seeking to trade at Fort Pitt, killing one and wounding two others. These fateful events became known as the Yellow Creek Massacre. The Mingo victims were the family of a fairly powerful Mingo chief named James Logan. Some sources refer to him as John Logan, and others use a variety of Indian names, all of which are disputed and which I would probably butcher if I attempted to pronounce them. So, I'll just call him Logan. Logan was the son of a Cayuga chief who by some accounts was a Frenchman adopted by the tribe as a young boy. Logan had been living on friendly terms with the colonists, that is, until they massacred his family. As you might guess, that set him off. He led a war party that killed dozens of colonists along the Virginia frontier over the next few weeks. Governor Dunmore was not going to allow this killing to continue. Regardless of who started the fighting, and it was the Virginians who started it, Dunmore's military instincts kicked in. He called on the Virginia House of Burgesses to raise three regiments of militia. They would invade the territory and pacify the Indians through military intimidation. A successful war might result in the native tribes ceding more land to Virginia for colonization, meaning money for speculators like Dunmore. It would also help secure Virginia claims to this land that Pennsylvania and Maryland were also claiming. Dunmore got the Burgesses to raise his regiments to fight the Indians, who had the audacity to be upset about being massacred and about colonists encroaching on land which the king had guaranteed they would not. Dunmore personally led two of the regiments down the Ohio River from Fort Pitt. Colonel Andrew Lewis led a third regiment from what is near today Lewisburg, West Virginia, to Point Pleasant, also on the Ohio River. Like most wars with Indians, this one would be without much respect for the enemy. If they found any Indians, they would kill them. If they found any Indian property, they would destroy it. By October 1774, Lewis reached Point Pleasant and awaited Dunmore's larger force. Once he arrived, the two groups would cross the Ohio River and take out several Shawnee villages. Shawnee Chief Cornstock received intelligence about this. He decided to attack Lewis before the larger force could join him. 
Around dawn on October 10th, Cornstalk's warriors attacked Lewis's regiment. Lewis had about 1,100 men, while Cornstalk controlled an estimated force of 900 to 1,000 warriors. Most of them were Shawnee, but other local warriors were in the mix as well. Cornstalk's warriors attempted to push back the Virginians against a bluff, but hit a stiff resistance. Fighting continued all day, some of it hand-to-hand. Late in the day, one company of Virginians was able to sneak away to one side and circle around and hit the Shawnee from behind. Fearing this was the first wave of a relief force, and because it was near dusk, Cornstalk pulled his force back across the river. Both sides suffered major casualties. As with a great many battles, I see a range of estimated casualties that don't seem to agree with each other. As best I can tell, the Virginians lost about 75 killed and another 140 wounded. The Indians lost between 50 and 230 casualties. Again, estimates vary greatly. Among the Indian dead was the father of Tecumseh, the famous warrior who would fight the Americans later in the War of 1812. Because the Virginians held the field at the end of the day, they are considered the winners. The local tribes would not be able to mount another major battle against the Virginians. A few days later, Dunmore's reinforcements arrived. Dunmore had been delayed because he was concluding treaties with the Delaware at Fort Pitt, agreeing to end hostilities. Dunmore's arrival forced Cornstalk to sign the Treaty of Camp Charlotte. In that treaty, Cornstalk agreed not to allow Shawnee to hunt east of the Ohio River and not to harass shipping along the river. The treaty effectively pushed Virginia's western border from the Allegheny Mountains to the Ohio River. This did not end all fighting, though. Chief Logan and his small band of Mingo refused to surrender or come to terms. Funny how having the enemy wipe out your whole family makes you stubborn like that. The Mingo continued to fight until the Virginians destroyed their main village of Seekonk a few weeks later. Logan survived that battle and continued to raid settlements along the Pennsylvania and Virginia frontier for years to come. When the revolution began, he fought with the British in order to kill more colonists. His end is unclear. Some sources say he was murdered. Others claim he died of natural causes, perhaps related to heavy drinking around 1780. Lord Dunmore seemed to hope that leading his Virginians to victory and expanding their territory would win him some support in the colony. The events of 1774 became known as Lord Dunmore's War. The colonists were generally happy with his victory and his attempts to convince London to open up that new territory to settlement. But by the end of fighting in late 1774, other political issues had taken center stage. Dunmore continued his hard line by shutting down the House of Burgesses and working to squash any protests over British policies in the colonies. Any harmony the governor and colonists could have established over their shared interest in killing Indians and taking their land would be quickly overshadowed by events in Lexington and Concord a few months later. There were also contentions over the war itself. Colonel Lewis complained that Dunmore had set him up at the Battle of Point Pleasant. When Cornstalk attacked Lewis, Dunmore was miles away at Fort Pitt. Lewis accused the governor of setting him up for failure. He said the governor 
expected Lewis and his regiment to be wiped out at Point Pleasant. This would have allowed Dunmore to avenge the massacre and make himself a hero. Although there is no good evidence that these accusations were true, the stories did nothing to help Dunmore's standing in the colony. Now, some historians argue that the Battle of Point Pleasant should be considered the first battle of the American Revolution. Now, like the Battle of Alamance Creek that I discussed back in episode 35, I think that this characterization is wishful thinking by locals who want that claim to fame. Point Pleasant saw British authorities and colonists fighting on the same side against Indians. If anything, this battle links up better as part of the French and Indian War or Pontiac's Rebellion than it does the Revolution. In any event, it was the last major battle with Indians prior to the outbreak of war between Britain and its colonies. Next week, as Massachusetts suffers under the Coercive Acts, General Gage attempts to get tough with the colonists and discovers they are not the pushovers that he had hoped. <laughs>